Uh, you know, kids are just uh, really, really wonderful, uh, as you know, and I had a little experience this week just with a couple of my kids that I thought I'd want to share with you. So I'm picking my kids up from school this week, the two of the middle ones, Phoebe and Elias. Uh, uh, how old is Phoebe? Ten years old, right? Ten years old. Ten years old. And Elias is eight years old. And, uh, and they get in the car, and I say, hey, guys, uh, when I get back home... Uh, I need to put some time in. I got I to gotta work on uh, the sermon for Sunday. And um, they were very understanding. I said, unless, unless one of you would like to give the message. Would, would one of you like to give the message on Sunday? And you would be so proud, like without any hesitation, they said, I'll do it. I'll be happy to do it. And I said, oh, that's great. So Phoebe... What would you speak on? If, if you had the opportunity to speak uh, to the church, what would you say? And she was very much like her dad. She said, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. I just, I just need to think about that. And so, uh, and then I said, Elias, okay, Elias, if you, eight years old, if you were to speak to the church, what would you say? And without any hesitation at all, he said, you know... I would talk about the time Jesus walked on water and, uh, and then Peter tried to walk on water and he couldn't do it and there were consequences. <laughs> and so, um, so that's, those are the things that are brewing in my son's heart these days and, um, and then um, who knows if, if that message ever develops, but... Take your Bible, please, and uh, meet me in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Acts 17 finds the Apostle Paul in the middle of his uh, second missionary journey. He's accompanied by, by Silas and Timothy, and then more recently by Luke also, uh, who of course authored the book of Acts. They're in the district of Macedonia, and as we considered last week, this is very significant because for the first time, the gospel had entered the Western world. For the first time, at least the first time we know of, the first time we're aware of, uh, the message of Jesus had crossed into Europe, and, and as we now know from this point in history, from our vantage point, we now know that Europe... Uh, would serve as the hub of Christianity for almost 2,000 years. Uh, from Europe, actually, the gospel extended uh, into nearly every nation and people group on the planet. Uh, and so I just think it's in, in, important that we not miss the, uh, really the, 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 the great significance of these monumental moments that we're reading and learning as we revisit the story of Acts because uh, it, it truly is world changing stuff. And as I said last week, who's to say that, that what, what God is doing in our world and in our midst right now, like, like what he's doing even in, in, the, in our lives in this room right now, who are we to know or say that he won't use what's happening right now uh, to further his kingdom and, and, uh, and, and minister to others for centuries to come? 
We saw a glimpse of this widespread impact last week as Paul and his ministry partners brought the truth of Christ to the city of Philippi and to people and to people in different settings in Philippi, people from vastly different backgrounds, settings that range from, uh, you remember, a, a riverside women's prayer meeting to the city streets to the local prison. So just, just the whole spectrum of places. Backgrounds that included a religious businesswoman from Thyatira, an enslaved and exploited, demon-possessed girl, and a prison guard on the verge of suicide. And each of these individuals met Jesus, which changed the course of their lives forever. And so we talked about how the Holy Spirit sends us uh, into places of all sort because Jesus reaches people of all type. For as we'll see in this morning's text, although we live in an upside-down world, Jesus is restoring things to the way it's supposed to be. I'd like to read this with you. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come as soon as possible, they departed. Thus is the word of God. Will you pray with me?
God, once again, we want to just thank you. We want to acknowledge you, and we want to acknowledge that this time is a gift from you. We're very grateful for this gift. We're very grateful for the gift of your word, our scriptures, our Bible. We're very thankful that you are a God. You are a communicating God. You, you, you want to reveal who you are to us. You want to reveal who we are. In love, you want us to see. We want us to see our need of you and how you provide for our need over and above. And so we thank you for the example of those who've gone before us. And as we now give this time to just revisit uh, these episodes that occurred so many years ago, we trust and we know that you have something for us today that applies to life today. And I pray for each person here that, Holy Spirit, you would, you would minister to each heart, touch each life, and draw each one into a closer, a closer relationship with you. Would you do that, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to show you, I want to remind you of our map. I just want to show you our map here of uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, just revisit where we are. Turn this on, revisit where we are here. So remember, this is where they began in Antioch in the district of Syria. They've moved all the way through here. They've come all the way up here. Uh, and then from this point, this is when the gospel moved into the Western world as they, as they crossed over the Aegean from Troas, uh, kind of puddle jumping on the island of Samothrace and then to Neapolis, and then they were in Philippi. And so over here, you can see, for those over here, they're in Philippi. And what we learned this morning is they move, uh, they've left Philippi and they're moving through the cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia and they come to Thessalonica. Now they're following, um, they're following a well-known path that was known as the Ignatian Way. Uh, and so the Ignatian Way is what connected, if you can imagine it over here somewhere, it connected Italy to Asia uh, it, it, it was kind of a, uh, the, 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 the way, the, the path, the road, the highway to get from the, uh, the Adriatic Sea, which is over here, to the Black Sea, which is over here. And so it's just a very well-known path, the Ignatian Way. And, um, and each of these cities, the cities of Philippi and Amphipolis and Apollonia, and Thessalonica, they, they all lie on this road. They're on this path. Thank you, Mark. Uh, in Thessalonica, they found a Jewish synagogue, and for three weeks, three Sabbaths, Paul reasoned from the scriptures with those in the synagogue. And his approach, notice, uh, this is instructive for us, his approach was to use scripture and to allow the Holy Spirit, who of course inspired the scripture, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through the Scripture 
into people's hearts. Uh, Bringing people to the Bible is therefore a very good practice. It's a good approach for us to adopt as well. You know, sometimes, I think in our efforts, and our motives, I think, can be very pure, but in our efforts to to witness or share uh, Jesus with people, we talk a lot about God, or we talk a lot for God, without ever letting God talk for himself. And so the more that we can bring people to the scripture, I think the better. Obviously, we can help people. We can help them learn. We can help explain what the Bible is saying. Uh, We should do that. We can can help them see how it speaks, how God is speaking into their lives today, how it's relevant for them. Uh, That's very helpful. We should do that. We can even contextualize it. We can take, uh, meaning we can take this timeless truth and we can, um, we can apply it to, to people's situations today. That's what Paul will do, actually, in the next section, what we'll learn next week, when he speaks with the Athenians, right? He observes what's going on in their lives, and he says, I've got something to say from the Scripture about that. And I think that's just very, very helpful for us, uh, because in the end, it's, it's the Word that does the work. We're told that the Word of God is living, the Word of God is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to, to, the, to the division of, uh, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, in many ways, Paul was letting the Word do the work. Notice also the word reasoned. Uh, This is equally important because it emphasizes that our Christian faith is reasonable. And it's persuasive. Ours is not a blind faith or a leap of faith. It's a faith that's based upon factual uh, evidence. And what we learn from their Thessalonica experience is they were proclaiming the fact that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Both of these components, Savior and Lord. Verse 3 presents Jesus as Savior. It says uh, that Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead. Uh, Referring to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, he's teaching that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah they'd been waiting for. Jesus is the very one God had promised long ago. He's the one. But Christ's death has been a stumbling block for Jewish people for centuries, both then and now. Uh, In their mind, the Messiah would come as a conquering king, overthrowing their enemies uh, while reestablishing their rightful place in the kingdom of God. The idea of a suffering servant never even crossed their minds. It never fit 
into their paradigm. So Paul was explaining why Christ's death and resurrection was necessary. It was necessary because since the fall, humankind has been in need of salvation from sin and its consequence. You can almost see, picture it with me, you can almost see Paul in the synagogue opening the Jewish scriptures before them, or what we call the Old Testament. Who knows, he may have begun in Genesis 3 uh, with the fall itself when God spoke of one, one to come who would defeat the devil once for all. Maybe he told how the story of Abraham and Isaac foreshadowed God's provision of the Christ. Or how the miraculous deliverance of the Jews from Egyptian captivity and the whole Passover experience was also a sign of how the Christ would deliver us. Eventually, undoubtedly, he'd arrive at Isaiah 53 to talk about how the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, though we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us, we've all turned from God to go our own way. God, in an act of incomparable love, has laid our sins upon the sinless one. This is what Paul is saying. Perhaps he then shared how Jesus' cry from the cross, you remember it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, that that actually comes from Psalm 22, which they knew to be messianic in nature. He then went on to reference some of the many Old Testament allusions to the resurrection. Maybe he quoted David, who said of Christ in Psalm 16 that God wouldn't abandon him to death or allow the Holy One to see corruption. Maybe he referred them to Jonah, And the sign of Jonah, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great whale for three days before his new life experience, so did Jesus rise from the grave on the third day. Or perhaps he took them to Job, to the oldest book of them all, written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, where Job declared, so long ago, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Did you know there are over 300 prophecies, 300, uh, that the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. Now these come from different Old Testament books, written by different authors, located in different parts of the world, who wrote at different times in history. They never communicated with each other. In fact, someone once calculated that if you took just 48 of the Messianic prophecies, I'm not sure why they settled on 48, but they said if you take just 48 of the Messianic prophecies, the probability that one person would fulfill all of them is is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So that's the number 1 with 157 zeros after it. 
In fact, this individual, university professor from Pasadena City College in Southern California, he wrote a book about these things published by Moody Press, which has since become a foundational piece when presenting evidence for Christ to the fields of math and science. You see, church, many who deny the faith do so not because they've examined the evidence and found it wanting, but because they've never considered the evidence. Many in Thessalonica, however, were convinced. From one scripture to the next, Paul connected the dots until the underlying picture revealed the person of Jesus. They were persuaded that Jesus is the Christ whom God had promised long ago. Jewish people were persuaded. Greek people were persuaded. Men and women were persuaded, including, it says, not a few of the leading women, which again is Luke's way of uplifting women in the kingdom of God. But some of the Jews, some of the Jews were closed to reason. It refers to those Jewish religious leaders. Jealous of Paul and Paul's teaching about Jesus, they gathered a group from among the rabble, that's what Luke calls them, uh, and they set the city in an uproar. They went after Paul and Silas, who were staying at the house of a man named Jason. Now, we don't know Jason. We've never met Jason before. But Jason had apparently opened his home and Paul and his friends were staying with Jason while in Thessalonica. So the Jews went to Jason's house with bad intentions, but they couldn't find Paul as they'd hoped. So to me, it's almost like a scene. Uh, You've seen movies, you've read stories. It's almost like a scene out of uh, Nazi Germany when the Gestapo would go house to house looking to seize people without cause, but they weren't always successful because other people would sometimes hide the persecuted from their sight. They they hid them under floorboards or in false ceilings or wherever they they could, wherever it worked. That's that's kind of what's happening here. And so uh, unable to find Paul and Silas, the the jealous mob, they, they seized Jason instead. And some of the other Christians who had gathered in Jason's house, and they dragged them before the city rulers. And, and I want you to notice what they say in verses six and seven. This is this is just so uh, so insightful, so informative in terms of it gives us insight into what uh, the ministry of Paul and Silas and the others entailed. This is what the authorities or, or those jealous Jews. This is what they say. They say these men. who've turned the world upside down, they're now in our city. And Jason has housed them. Jason is bringing them in. Uh, All of them, Paul and Silas and Jason and all the rest, all of them are acting in defiance of Caesar uh, because they are proclaiming that Jesus is king. So, what becomes clear at this point 
is that not only did Paul and the others proclaim Jesus as Savior, they also taught that Jesus is Lord. And those who refused to accept this, like these jealous leaders, to them it felt as if the world was being turned upside down. What they failed to recognize, though, is that it wasn't being turned upside down. It was being set right side up. Because ever since the fall, the world is already upside down. But, but, but in Christ, God is restoring things to the way it's supposed to be. No wonder so many of the Thessalonians came to faith, even if these didn't, because people know then what people know today, that something is terribly wrong with the world, the world of humanity. We know this. People from all walks of life agree on this. You don't have to be an expert in the field to observe the effects of a sin-ravaged world. Every day, not a day goes by when we aren't confronted with the damage that sin has done. When we live apart from God, death and despair take over even the longing, right? Even the longing in our own hearts, it, it proves almost instinctively that we know we're made for more. That life is meant for more. So what does God do? He rescues. He redeems. He restores. He doesn't leave us in our sinful state, even though we're the ones who brought it on. In Christ, He saves us from sin's power and its penalty by entering our human plight, by suffering with us and ultimately for us, and by overcoming all that sin and death can throw our way. For when Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, God declared that new life is now available to anyone who trusts in Him. You see, to know Jesus as Savior is, truly is life-altering. It is. Uh, but it's important we know that He's more than Savior. He is King. He is the King of kings. He is the one who humbled himself. And this is what's amazing. The King of kings humbled himself to our low position in order to raise us up to new life with God. To acknowledge him as Savior is to admit you need saving. Whereas to acknowledge him as Lord is to yield your life to his rule. That's what these people were doing, those in Thessalonica who came to faith. They knew that without Christ, they're already upside down and that Jesus was turning it right side up. Well, then the scene shifts to, to the nearby city of Berea. 
It's one of the, uh, Berea apparently was one of the most populous cities in the district of Macedonia. Verse 9, verse 9 uh, just tells how the city authorities, they basically extorted Jason and the others by taking, um, by taking money to secure their protection. And so when the Christians returned to Jason's house, they just knew full well that trouble was brewing and that, uh, that Paul and Silas were the targets. And so they sent them away by night to Berea. And once in Berea, the two men entered the local synagogue again. And again, they began sharing the message of Jesus. And I just love how Luke describes the Bereans' response to this message. Unlike the jealous, troublemaking Jews in Thessalonica, those in Berea were open to reason and eager to learn. Luke says they were more noble. It basically means they were respectful. Uh, And they carried themselves in a respectable way. They respected Paul and Silas. Uh, Clearly, they showed great respect for God and God's word. Uh, The the Bereans, as as some of you know, the Bereans are still admired for this to this day. To this day, people still look to them as examples when it comes to hungering for truth. Whenever you hear of someone talk about the Bereans, isn't it? It's, it's always in a positive light. How many of you remember the Berean Christian bookstore down in Sacramento by uh, Arden Fairmall? Uh, obviously, bookstores in general are kind of going the way of the dodo. But I spent many years, many, I spent many hours over many years going to, uh, to that bookstore, the Berean Christian bookstore, um, reviewing all sorts of things, books and Bibles and reference materials and, and music and, and uh, uh, ministry resources of, of every kind. Uh, it's just a great name for a Christian bookstore. And it's one that harkens back to this passage and to the Bereans whose reputation for being eager in their pursuit of truth still rings true today. And so, church, I just want to challenge you this morning from this scripture to be like a Berean. And I want to quickly walk through five things here, five things I see uh, that help us in this regard, five attributes of the Bereans Five ways to apply their example to our own lives. First, just be respectful. Be respectful. Uh, Show respect when conversing with others about God or the Word of God or spiritual matters in general. Be respectful. Even uh, if you disagree... Even if you disagree, be respectful. Carry yourself in a respectable way. Value people in this way. And who knows, you may learn something you didn't know. My, my kids, my kids' elementary school, they have a slogan 
uh, on their cafeteria wall that says, Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And I like that. I like that because it, it, it encourages common decency and it teaches uh, foundational skills in basic communication. Second, be teachable. Be teachable. Verse 11 talks about how they received the word eagerly, which describes how they were open to new thought. They were willing to learn what they didn't know. They went to church notice or synagogue. They went to synagogue with a desire to learn. And they applied themselves to the learning process. That's so important to apply yourself to the learning process. If you've ever been in a teaching scenario, if you ever tried to teach someone, maybe in a classroom setting or, uh, or, uh, or you're training someone at work, or a parent or a family member who is uh, teaching another family member, you know there's a world of difference between someone who's teachable and someone who isn't. The Bereans were teachable. Third, be engaged. It says they examined the Scripture which is more than just listening to what someone says about Scripture. It implies participation and personal investment. Now, in churches, in church settings, we sometimes talk about being fed. You heard that? We want to be fed. It's important that we're fed. And often, people will leave churches because, in their opinion, they aren't being fed. To be completely honest with you, I've had people who've left our church tell me the reason they're leaving our church is they aren't being fed. Which goes to show that there's an expectation out there somewhere that someone else is responsible to feed me if I am to grow spiritually. But there seems to be a, a huge gap in the thinking here because one of the hallmark marks of, of the, one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity is the willingness and ability to feed yourself. I'm sure I speak for most every pastor in saying that each week, we know Sunday's coming. <laughs> and each week, we try hard to prepare a good meal from the Scripture. I mean, obviously, we're using the best ingredients, right? So we try hard to prepare a good meal uh, from the Scripture. Um, 
At the same time, we're also trying to be mindful that we're all in different places spiritually. We're all going through different circumstances. We're all different ages and backgrounds. And so we're trying to prepare a good meal from the scripture that is true to God's word and also true to all of the, all of the circumstances and situations in the room. Obviously, sometimes we do a better job than others. But I promise you that I will do my best, church, to put a good meal on the table as best as I'm able. And if I can't, I'll get my son to do it for me. (laughs) I may even plate it on occasion and give you, provide you with some utensils. But at the end of the day, Like the Bereans, you've got to grab the fork and dig in. Because no one can do that for you. The Bereans were engaged. They participated. They personally invested in the learning process. The fourth characteristic we see of them is is to be consistent says they examined the scriptures daily. Uh, They were in God's word regularly and frequently. For them, being in scripture was more than just once a week. And so I just think we must find ways to incorporate the Bible into our daily routine. We We must do our best. I understand. I mean, life is busy. I get it. It seems to be moving at a quicker pace every year. Sometimes every month is quicker than the, or, uh, the month before. Uh, I get all of that, but, but, but I, don't, I don't think, even as someone who, who, um, who recognizes those challenges and faces them himself, I, I, I just honestly don't think those things are good reasons to not be more consistent in the Bible. I think it's important that we are consistent in our Bible intake. Thankfully, there are so many helps for us in this regard. I mean, we just have helps galore. Uh, There are printed materials. There are digital materials. There are apps you can get for your phone that will help you be in the Bible consistently and so be respectful be teachable be engaged be consistent and finally believe believe look at with me at verse 12 many of them therefore believed Now, the word therefore implies that because they were respectful, because they were teachable, because they were engaged, and because they were consistent, they were more likely to believe. 
Again, coming to faith and growing in faith is not a passive experience. Faith is acting on what God has revealed and is revealing. So Jewish Bereans and Greek Bereans, including Greek men and women of high standing, considered what Paul and Silas were teaching from the Scripture. They applied themselves to the learning process and drew the conclusion that, yes, Jesus is is indeed Savior and Lord. And then they acted upon this fact and they believed. They believed. But the rabble rousers from Thessalonica just couldn't leave it alone. And when they heard that Paul had eluded them and was now teaching in Berea, they made the trek and they wreaked havoc there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Luke says, Luke says it's because they were jealous. Luke says that it's because they were jealous. Right? We read that in, uh, in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. They were jealous. They were, they were, they were jealous in Thessalonica, and clearly their jealousy had not subsided. You see, jealousy always wants attention. It always wants attention. It's related, I think, to covetousness, but it's different. To covet is to crave what someone has. Like, I, I, want, that person's, I want that person's stuff, or I want that person's beauty, or I want that person's ability in a given area. I'm, I, I want that. But jealousy craves the attention that those things bring. Jealousy wants to be recognized and praised by others. When someone else is recognized or acknowledged, jealousy wants to rob them of the recognition and have it all for yourself. The issue that set these Jewish leaders in a frenzy was not Paul's teaching of Scripture, necessarily. It's that the people were giving attention to Paul instead of them. More than that, they gave their attention to Jesus. They gave their admiration to Jesus. They gave the affection of their hearts to Jesus. Ultimately, they gave their lives to Jesus and their allegiance to Jesus. And these Jewish leaders overcome with jealousy just couldn't swallow it. In fact, their response here is nearly identical, isn't it, to the response of the Pharisees when the people of Christ's day placed trust in Him instead of them. And so I think it's important to recognize that unfortunately, jealousy still plagues the human heart. It still keeps people from faith in Christ. And we're not immune 
I'm sure there's not a single person in this room who hasn't dealt with feelings or thoughts of jealousy. And so we're not immune. Jealousy wants to be the center of your world, wants you to be the center of your world. Rather than surrendering the throne of your life to the Lord, who alone is worthy of it. And so I just can't help but asking, is jealousy keeping you from the truth of Jesus this morning? Are you still allowing sin and the sin nature within to rule your life in that way? That you want to be the center of your world when in actuality, the very best thing for you is to surrender the throne of your life to Christ. In Thessalonica and Berea, we see these two basic responses to the message of Jesus. We have on one hand, receptivity, and on the other, resistance. And we just have to ask ourselves, church, which of these two best characterizes your response, our response to Jesus this morning. Are you open and receptive to God and what God is doing in your life even now? Or are you resisting Him? Of course, resisting Christ doesn't change who He is. But if you receive Him for who He is, both as Savior and as Lord, if you follow Him for who He is, Savior and Lord, if you trust Him each day as Savior and Lord, thankfully, He will change you. Though our lives are so often upside down, And though we live in an upside-down world, aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus is restoring things to the way they're supposed to be? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time. Please help us to be receptive and not resistant to the work you're doing in our lives, even today. Help us to learn from the, those in Thessalonica and in Berea who, who heard of Jesus, who considered and reasoned over the things of Jesus, who took in the word of God and surrendered their lives to Jesus gladly, willingly, joyfully, Help us to be like that and not like those for whom jealousy and envy and hardness of heart kept them from life and life eternal. And so we look to you today and always in his name. Amen. Amen.